Uh, we are going to just jump right into our study for tonight, as we have been, uh, for the last several weeks here on Sunday evenings, going through uh, Peter's letters. So we're going to be walking through First uh, and Second Peter, and we're making headway through the, this first letter. Of course, this is week number four, and we're still in chapter one, So, uh, but that's okay. Uh, there's a lot here in Peter's letters. As we've seen, uh, as we've noted several times throughout this, he is packing so much theology, significance, truth. Uh, into uh, a very short amount of time. And so even in Peter's salutation here in 1 Peter 1, he uh, was really reminding his readers uh, a lot about who they were in Christ. And uh, such as uh, what we will see throughout his letters is uh, he is doing as much as possible with as little space uh, as he can. Uh, and also, as we've been seeing, and I'm going to try and keep doing this as well, uh, all of these letters, or excuse me, all of what Peter is writing here, is born out of Peter's experiences with Jesus Christ. So we were noting, especially in the beginning, just how indicative it is that he's writing what he's writing when you look and flip back to all the experiences Peter had in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Really, if you do some research, the Gospel of Mark is essentially Peter's Gospel in the sense that uh, the tradition holds that Peter was sort of uh, articulating these truths to John Mark, who then wrote his Gospel from that. Um, Anyways, uh, you can see a lot of what Peter experienced being born out and saying, look, I witnessed these things as he's writing this letter. And so uh, as we we've noted that several times, and I think all that to say is that these letters are very personal for Peter. These are letters where he is writing very much his own experiences. This is what the gospel did for me. This is what the gospel has done in my life. And he's really imparting that sort of gospel transformation uh, through these letters to these churches here. And I think it's also that the fact that as he's echoing these events, he's sort of calling to mind all of these things he's witnessed and experienced. And he's writing them down almost in an echo format here in these letters. He is writing them in such a practical way. He's not writing about theoretical things that just come from some sort of theological ivory tower. He's writing in such a way that these are really practical realities that hit home, that uh, speak to us where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. He, he's not encouraging these churches with some sort of vague sense of spirituality that they can cling to when the times get bad. Remember, uh, that's what we looked at last week, uh, verse 3 of chapter 1. He's talking about the, quote, lively hope that they have in the gospel. Lively hope. Literally, their hope was active, living, breathing. He's talking about Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. You don't have to just hope and aspire to some amorphous thing. Your hope actually is breathing right now, church. That's what he's saying to them. That's how real their hope and confidence could be. It's lively. It's active. Your hope still has blood in his veins. And he's living for you right now. Because of the resurrection, this is true. And he remains to sort of invigorate this church through all of these very empirical truths. And and that's kind of what we were uh, talking about last week. That this hope was in a person, this person Jesus, and such is what would sustain them through uh, their season of heaviness, this living, active, breathing hope. And it's this same sense of practicality that sort of 
guides Peter, not just here, but throughout the rest of these letters, but especially I think through tonight's text that Pastor Nathan read, verses 13 down through the end of chapter 1. You'll notice verse 12 sort of is, again, still talking about how this hope was predicted all throughout Scripture. And in verse 12, we get that interesting phrase where it talks about this hope even the angels desire to look into. And then you get this significant transition from verse 12 into verse 13. Notice what he says in verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That transition right there. It's all bound up in that word wherefore. It's just a simple grammatical term. It's a conjunction that is joining two thoughts together. But in it we have this really significant thought. It's a word in the Greek that literally means on account of. Or for that reason. So you can literally sense Peter's train of thought after going through all of this assurance that the church can have because of their lively hope, because of this hope that they can have in the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of all that, now here is what that means. Here's what that means for you. Here's what that means for you right where you are. Because it might be, it might sound Sort of like he's getting into some sort of vague spirituality when he's talking about your lively hope and all these sorts of things that he goes into and this incorruptible uh, thing and all that kind of stuff. This incorruptible inheritance he talks about. It seems kind of vague and out there. What does that really mean? He talks about in verse 3 being begotten again or born again unto a lively hope. What does that mean? What does that really look like? I know what it means per se. It means that Jesus Christ has borne us again because of his resurrection. This is the gospel. What does that look like though? And why is it even necessary that we have to live in a certain way because of this? Well, this is exactly what Peter's going to talk about here in verses 13 down to the end of the chapter. He's talking about because, wherefore... On account of this lively hope that we have in the gospel and on account of that gospel of resurrection, this is how you should live. The the lives that we are uh, called to live are embodied in this word that he is everywhere going to expound here in this, this. That word is holiness. He says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy. That might sound like a very stressful thought. (laughs) That sort of flat command, be ye holy. (laughs) But as Peter is here going to articulate very well, I think, that holiness is the practical outcome of lives that are born again by the gospel. As he has already sort of suggested, lives that are in the the fiery trial. If you go back to verse 6 and verse 7, it talks about the season of heaviness. And our lives are sort of like bricks of gold that have been put into the furnace and are being refined by fires and by heat. The outcome of that is holiness. 
And what does that look like? Well, I want to encourage you in this because it should not make you as stressed as often the word holiness might make us stressed. (laughs) I want to look at four truths really quickly concerning our call, the church's call, the Christian's call to holy living. Now, watch. Look at verses 13 through 17. Here we first see the necessity of holiness. The necessity of holiness. Look again what he says. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This verse is so indicative of Peter's heart. You can sense this sort of urgency that is in Peter's mind, that is in Peter's words, as he's sort of calling this church to armed, calling them to arms. Wherefore, gird up, be sober, be hopeful, hope to the end. Each, uh, each imperative, therefore, in this verse really carries this sort of connotation of being uh, as if it's given by a military commander. Be ready, be watchful, be hopeful, be on your guard, be alert, be aware. You see, these present days for these Specific believers were dark. As we've everywhere noticed, these specific churches, as he wrote about back in the very beginning of the, of the, of the book, these are churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They have uh, are churches that are predominantly Gentile, churches that are predominantly being uh, into, forced to scatter because of persecution. These are the perhaps early days of Emperor Nero's persecution of the church. And you can actually very well see how grim their hope was. They didn't have a lot of high hopes perhaps in the present moment. Such is why Peter spent so much time in the first half of this chapter talking about how their true hope was living and active. And actually their true hope and inheritance couldn't be touched by anything in this life. Go back to verse 4. He says, you've been begotten again to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. No matter what is going on, church, nothing can take away the inheritance that you have in Jesus Christ. You want to know why that was so precious? to them because everything that they had in front of them was being taken away their hope was grim that's why peter was talking about how real their hope was but think also too that when things are get frenetic when things get really convoluted and confusing and stressful what ends up falling by the wayside What ends up being cast off when your schedules get too busy and you're not just being persecuted, you're just having too much of a busy life? What usually falls off the tracks? I would say more often than I, at least for me, I'll speak from my heart. (laughs) More often it's these little things that I know, that I know grow my own soul in holiness. The things that are hard. The things that are difficult. The things that are often uh, too sort of in the way. Think about that for a church that was being persecuted. That was being tried for the faith. Think about how easy it must have been to not be as uh, sort of putting forth that much effort. To what they knew they should be doing. I get the sense that Peter is sort of. Anticipating this sort of sense of resignation in this church. 
Life is just too hard. We don't have time for the very small particular matters that lead to holiness, the means of grace, and all those sorts of things. We just don't have the sort of wherewithal and leeway. We don't have the bandwidth to really make effort in those things. And I think that's why he's calling them here into this moment to remind them of the critical and vital necessity of holiness in the church. Not just for the health of the church, but for the advance of the gospel. This is why it's important. Notice again, verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be resolved. Be uh, sober. Be, and it says, in hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You notice. All of these Commands These imperatives that Peter lays down here. Hey church be this. Are derived out of this ground of faith. You can be resolved. You can be sober. You can be serious. You can be hopeful. All because the grace of Jesus Christ. Has been revealed to you. In the person of Jesus Christ. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. On the account of the gospel. Here's how you should live. He is basically saying. And I love those two phrases. He says, be sober. You know what that word literally means? If you look it up in the Greek, which is so wonderful, it literally means calm and collected. Gird up your loins, get alert, and be calm and collected. And then he says, and follows that up with, hope to the end. Which literally is translated, trust completely. Those phrases must have been such a a balm, such a sort of medicine to this church. (laughs) Church, you can be calm. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can walk collectively and circumspectly and trustfully because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the grace that is revealed in this person who is your living hope. This is what faithful living looks like. It's total trust in the person of Jesus Christ and his words of promise in the gospel. Resigning whatever the future might hold. Not to our efforts and our, and our hopes and dreams and aspirations. But resigning all of that to his sovereignty. Saying be alert. Yes. Be aware. Yes. But be sober. Be calm. Be collected. Know and trust completely in all that he has for you and has given you by his grace in the gospel. I think about this all the time lately. And how easy it is to be given over to all of these wild ideas and imaginations regarding the days ahead and whatever the future might hold. All the conspiracy theories that are going on around us all the time. And it's so easy to be inundated by that and to believe in them. And not just believe in them, but to hold them as if they are gospel. Here, Peter is saying all of that. Resign the future to the sovereignty of God at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be sober and trust completely in the future that he has already written for you. And this is 
This isn't easy. I'm not saying it's easy. <laughs> Open Facebook and you will be stressed by the amount of theories that are being thrown out there about whatever thing you want to look at. <laughs> and Peter sort of knows this, not about Facebook, but he knows how sort of difficult and odd it is to live as a person in the church in a world that's utterly opposed to everything you believe. And notice what he says in verse 17. He says, if you call on the Father who, without respect of person, judges according to every man, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. He suggests, he uses that word very pointedly, sojourning. It's a word that is suggestive of a people who are just dwelling in a strange land. They're not actual citizens. They're actually like foreigners in a very strange land that's not their home. So you can see what he's saying here. You're living in a place that's not your home. And the most revolutionary lifestyle you can live today is to live according to and on account of someone who has authority over you. On account of King Christ. He is your authority. And living in light of his authority is the most revolutionary lifestyle you can live. On account of his reality of the future. On account of his holiness that he has gifted to us by faith. Notice what he says in verse 15. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. It's a phrase that comes right out of the law. Leviticus 19 verse 2. If you remember too, Jesus spoke this. At, at near the, the middle part of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 verse 48. Remember, he, he's going through all those things. If you remember Matthew 5, I love Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He's going through all these different things. And actually, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus' sort of uh, exposition of the Ten Commandments. You want to be holy by yourself? Here's how you got to do it. Because remember, he starts out that sermon, unless you have a holiness that exceeds the Pharisees, who were lofted as being the most holy people that were around them in that society, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. It has to be even better than them, the ones who are considered the best. It's not just about, it's not just about committing adultery. It's not lusting. It's not just about, uh, about murdering your brother. It's about, or murdering someone. It's about not being angry at your brother and so on and so forth. He's enhancing holiness to such a degree where at the end where he says, if you want to try and get to heaven, then this way, you've got to be absolutely 100% holy. So when Peter here is calling this here again, you know what he's saying? That basically... You can't do this unless you do it as you trust and live calmly and collectively in the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is to say, unless you do it by faith. Be ye holy is a command that is only fulfilled as we are faithful in Jesus Christ and what his words are to us. 
It's hard to come to grips with. But I love the truth that what Peter here is saying is that there's a necessity of holy living that is made plain here. And we are to do so because we are sojourners in a land that is not our own. And we are called to exemplify and to epitomize this lively hope that we have in Jesus. And we do that best by living faithfully in the holiness that he has gifted to us in the revelation of the grace of Jesus Christ. We have here this need for holiness. And it really comes down to calm and collected living. You know, that to me, this has sort of helped me in my own sort of, quote, efforts at being holy. <laughs> it's not living as if there's some massive thing that I have to accomplish or win or to prove or to accomplish. It's not living as if there's some proverbial giant checkbox that I have to constantly be hoping that I've checked off by all of these things that I've tried to do. Living holy is living as if it's already all been done for you. It's living as if it's been already settled, as if it's already been secured. Guess what? Living holy is living as if it's already finished. Guess what it is? It is finished. Jesus cried from the cross and all of our holiness was secured in that. And Peter saying, be sober, be calm and the collected in the holiness that you've been gifted in Jesus Christ, knowing, knowing this, that as the church, he is coming back for you. For me, this is, this is what calms my restless soul. When I can get so frenetic and worrying about all these little things I have to do and check off and make sure I'm meeting and make sure I'm fulfilling and make sure I'm finishing. And he's saying, be sober and trust completely on your own efforts at securing the grace of Jesus. No, trust completely for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trust completely in that. Trust completely in what the gospel says is true because it is true. You can bank on it. You can trust in it. You can stand in it. Trust completely in it. And to further clarify that, he moves into the second thing. Uh, we have the necessity of holiness in verses 18 and 19. We have the cost of holiness. Because he wants to get in these churches' mind exactly what it means to God and what it should mean for the church to uh, be holy. Notice verse 18. He says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He contrasts these two sort of, uh, sort of monetary things, these two, two sort of uh, 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 pieces of currency, corruptible things and precious blood. You see, right from the very beginning, he's insistent that holiness is, comes by way of a transaction. 
It comes by way of a transaction, but he's very specific in terms of what is accepted at this transaction. And he's insistent that the, the holiness that these churches were to be the examples of, to be the witnesses of, was not purchased by anything that they possessed within themselves. As corruptible churchgoers, all they could offer was corruptible things. Which could never secure their pardon. Which could never purchase their redemption. Which could never win the remission of sins that they so needed. Nothing they ever put forward would ever be sufficient. For that they needed something way more pure, way more powerful. They needed blood. As he says there. You know that you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Which is a wonderful verse. Why? Because here, as we've already seen and we've already noted, Peter's packing a ton of scriptural theology into a small amount of space. He wants to keep reminding them of all these things that they might not have known. Remember, he's writing to Gentiles who didn't always have a robust history of Jewish theology. And here, he's connecting Jesus Christ, the Savior of the Gentiles, to a a a ton of Old Testament prophecy regarding the Messiah. With this hopeful expectation that is everywhere presented in the Old Testament of this king that would come and make a nation out of Israel. Not just that, that would redeem Israel. And not just that, as we keep learning throughout the Old Testament, that this coming king would also let other people into his kingdom, as we read about this morning in Isaiah 55. And here he's saying that it's this person of Jesus Christ. He is the actual manifestation of the hope of the Old Testament. And you see what Peter is doing in just a few short words. He's intertwining Old Testament hope with New Testament reality to make us see the one gospel of Jesus Christ. It's from the old to the new. It presents us Jesus You can go to Exodus chapter 12 and you can read about how they were supposed to uh, sort of sacrifice a spotless, unblemished lamb. You can read about it in Leviticus 4. You can read about it in Isaiah 53. Everywhere throughout the Old Testament. We see this hopeful expectation for a lamb that would come and, and finally fulfill a once and for all the atonement that we need from our sins. And here Peter is saying, that's Jesus. He's the precious lamb who poured out his blood. And what I also love too about what Peter's doing here is he's being very okay with the idea that we need blood for an atonement. You know, there's this in vogue sort of thing in some circles of Christianity where they want to deny the necessity of, quote, penal substitutionary atonement, which is a big theological term for just needing blood to save you from your sins. People don't like this idea that, that God would somehow send his son. And you read that incredible verse in Isaiah 53, I think it's verse 10, where it talks about the father was pleased to crush his son and how that's. Somehow divine child abuse or something like that. Some, some new fancy thing. And here Peter is saying, no, we, we need blood to be atoned from our sins. And not just any blood. We need God's blood. 
And here, that's what he's saying. That's why this blood is so precious. It is that it comes from a lamb without spot and without blemish because it comes from one who was divine. I always think, I forgot to write this in my notes. It's okay. I always think of that, that movie. You may have not seen it. I've never even seen it. But I just know that one line from that movie. It's, it's one of those Marvel movies, which I haven't always seen. And it comes from Iron Man 2. And the, the, the villain there, I don't know, maybe Pastor Nathan remembers it because he watched through all of them. But um, Iron Man 2, the, I think his name is Ivan Drago. Anyways, it doesn't matter. The, the bad guy, he's, he's talking to Iron Man. And he says, if you can make God bleed, people will cease to believe in him. Which is a very provocative statement. Because at that time, Iron Man was being lofted as a god. So if you could make Iron Man bleed, people would stop to believe in Iron Man. Which, we don't have to talk about Iron Man. But I think it's a very interesting statement. (laughs) If you can make God bleed, people will cease to believe in him. And actually, that's our faith. That because God bleeds, we believe in him. Because God bleeds and he pours out his blood for sinners like you and me. That's the creed of our faith. So we can repudiate any notion about that because we have the fact that God shed his blood for sinners like you and me. Wretched, vile people who constantly commit sin and constantly rebel. And yet we say, God bled for me. It's the precious blood of Jesus. It's everything. I love this quote. It comes from one of my favorite writers, Octavius Winslow. He was a writer way back in the 1800s. And he wrote this. It's so powerful. He says, the blood of Jesus is everything. Is the central doctrine of our faith. The present and eternal life of our souls. There is no pardon, no salvation, no heaven but by blood. And the blood of the Lord Jesus. This is the wonderful gospel that he have, that we have. That, that Jesus was so in love with his holiness that at the cost of his own life, he bought it for us. He came down to the cross to buy our pardon, to seal our redemption, and to secure our holiness on behalf of people who could never be holy in and of themselves. And he says, here, I will do it in myself. And he did. The precious blood of Christ has secured this for us, not by incorruptible, not by corruptible things as with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the lamb without blemish and without spot. There's no sin that can withstand that. There's, there's, there's no circumstance in your life which can take away that. If you, by faith, here tonight, believe in the precious blood of Jesus that has saved you from your sin, nothing can take that away from you. No circumstance, no stressful situation, no persecution, no, uh, no death, no failure, no fault. Nothing in that life, in your life, can take that away from you. You are redeemed by blood. The necessity of holiness, the cost of holiness. But notice he goes on to further ensure that they are confident. In verses 20 through 21 by talking about the means of holiness. Because again, think, put yourself in the, these churches' shoes. Gentiles. 
coming to faith in this gospel that's radically changing the world. As we, you can read about in Acts chapter 16, they were accused of, quote, turning the world upside down. They're preaching this revolutionary new doctrine, so to speak, about how this Jesus guy from Nazareth raised from the dead. And they're talking about living the, quote, way of Christ. All of these new things are happening. Churches are being formed. Movements are happening. And now the Gentiles are sort of getting in on the scene. And you can sort of imagine how disillusioned some of might be at the fact that uh, now, after putting our faith in Jesus, all of these bad things are going to be happening to us. How do we even know that we have a part of this? How do we even know that we belong? In this whole kind of story of Jesus. In this quote way of Jesus Christ. So he provides even further confidence. That all of this is part of God's plan. Notice verse 20. He says. Well I'll read verse 20, uh, 19. But with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. This lamb who verily was foreordained. Before the foundation of the world. But was manifest in these last times. For you. Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. You see what he's doing. All of this was foreordained. It was prearranged that Jesus Christ at the price of his own blood would purchase your forgiveness and your holiness. And it would be done on your behalf. From before the foundation of the world, he says. I think about, think that Peter has everywhere said this. Go to Acts chapter 2. This is something that's very indicative of Peter's own message. Here, Peter is preaching at the day of Pentecost. And notice what he says. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter's talking, he's standing up and speaking. Acts 2.22, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. (laughs) By the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of the Godhead, of the God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son, they determined in times past that he would be uh, unto this end. That he would be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, as it says in Philippians chapter 2. That he would manifest more of himself through this scheme of redemption. Think about that. One writer, I think it's, I think it's Horatius Bonar. I, I forget the exact quote. Horatius Bonar is one of my favorite writers if you look him up. He's this old 18th, uh, 1800s Scotsman who has a wonderful way with how he writes. And he writes in one of these little tracks. It's called The Grace, the Service, and the Kingdom, I think. You can find it on Google Books, by the way, for free. Uh, But anyways, if you read it, it's only like 50 pages. But he talks in there so eloquently about how the fact that grace shows us more of what we have in Jesus than actually Adam had pre-fall. 
That we see more of God's heart out of how he deals with unholy people than how he deals with holy people. And so you can see how this has revealed more of himself. He's wanting to show more of the wideness of his mercy. More of the wideness and compassionate character of himself. That's literally what that word there means in verse 20. Manifest. Means to make known what was previously hidden. To reveal is reminiscent of that word that begins the revelation of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. To reveal, to expose. He's, it, it's, it's, it's this. That the heart of God was embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And we see who God is and what God is like in a living, breathing person, Jesus Christ. And he was the means by which man was to become holy. And this was all part of the prearrangement of God from before eternity existed. From before the foundation of the world. You can know that this has been his plan. This has been his intention. He has purposed to do this, to reveal the fullness of who he is. So yes, you and I in 2020 have a place in the gospel because this truth holds firm even now that before the foundation of the world, he was foreordained to this end. To shed his blood for your sin and for mine. Think about that. All the times that you resisted the will of God. I think about this in my own life. How many times I've said something really ridiculous yet again. Gone back to that thing that I know and I promised I would never go back to yet again. I get mad at that person for doing that thing yet again. I lose my temper. I lose my cool. Do that. We can think of so many things. Jesus Paid for all of that. He paid for all of that. And he says, guess what? By faith, you can live holy because I have bought your holiness for you. And by faith, be sober. Be calm and collected in the holiness that I have bought for you. By my own blood. And what does that mean for us even now? Well, he gets into that in the last couple verses. The necessity of holiness, the cost of holiness, the means of holiness, and lastly, number four, and I'll close, the consequence of holiness. Look at verse 22. He's talking about how this holiness has been wrought by faith in these believers' lives. And he says in verse 22, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another. With a pure heart, fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is grass, and all the glory of man is as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which the gospel was preached unto you. Verses 23 through the end of their sort of recap and sort of reverse order what he's already been talking about. And he expresses here, right there in the middle, at the end there of verse 22, I would say the hallmark, the the chief characteristic of this holiness that he's been referring to thus far. What is it? 
love one another with a pure heart fervently. You see, verse 22 signals another significant transition in sort of this grammar that Peter here is using in his letter. Seeing that, verse 22, the first word, seeing that, or since then, or because of all that, here is the consequence, here's the result. Since you've been made holy through obedient faith in Jesus Christ, love one another with a pure heart fervently. He adds that modifier there at the end of that verse. Fervently, literally, earnestly, or I love how it can also be translated intensely. Which leads to ask myself, do I love my neighbor intensely? Do I have an intense love to show them the hope, the lively hope that I have in Jesus Christ? Do I have an intentioned purpose to embody God's love just as Jesus Christ embodied the heart of God for you and I? Do I have a heart to embody God's love and compassion for them? If I'm being honest with you, no, I don't. If I'm being honest with you, no, I, I maybe do it half-heartedly, not fervently. But this to me is the wonderful consequence of holiness. Again, you can see it. It reminds me of that wonderful scene in Matthew 22. Actually, well, you don't have to go there. I'll just talk about it. Matthew 22, remember the lawyer comes up to Jesus. And he asks him, what's the most important law? What's the most important command? And what is the one word he sums it up with? Love. Love your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. One word suffices to summarize the entire Decalogue. The entire commandments. It's not some little thing that they can do. It's not little some tip. Not some little checkbox that they have to stress over trying to check off. He says that the holiness of the law is embodied in love. We can live soberly. Calmly and collectively in the holiness that we've been given. Knowing that the best way to embody that holiness is through love, through acts of deference, through uh, acts of compassion and fervent, pure concern for our neighbor. A neighbor, not just our next door neighbor, our church neighbors, our family neighbors, the ones that we don't often get around. <laughs> you know, I, I think about this and I have so many family uh, back in Greenville, South Carolina. And to my own detriment, we often didn't always get together as much as I wished. And we were literally within like a five-mile radius. <laughs> Sometimes I think about that and wish I could change that. <laughs> well, now I'm several thousand miles away, so it doesn't matter. But th- think about your, quote, neighbors in your circles and how you can love them. How you can embody Jesus' love for them. It might be hard in this unprecedented times. But we can still show love for our neighbor. 
we can still show concern for their souls. I think such is what Peter's getting at. His concern for this church wasn't necessarily their circumstances. He was concerned for their soul. Such is why he writes about this active hope, which this active hope, once it gets embedded into the heart, is embodied in holiness. A holiness which they have been gifted. As he says previously, out of the abundant mercy of the Father. Tonight, how are you embodying this love? Is it an active thing? Is it a fervent thing? Or is it a dormant thing? Is it a quiet thing in your life? We, as a church, have a call to holy living. Let us pray.